Welcome to Energy Thinks, a podcast about how the oil and gas industry will lead into the energy future. I'm Tisha Schuler, your host and the CEO of Adamantine Energy. This season, I have been sitting down with thought leaders in and around the oil and gas industry to look at the competing trends of ESG and anti-ESG with an eye to what's coming next and how companies can chart a consistent course that's responsive without being reactionary. On our final episode of this season, I have a real treat for you. I speak with James Pethokoukis. He's the senior fellow and DeWitt Wallace chair at the American Enterprise Institute. He writes and edits the AE Ideas blog and he hosts the Political Economy podcast. He has an MSJ in journalism and a BA in Russian politics and US history from Northwestern University. As you'll hear, we talk about his book, The Conservative Futurist, which I highly recommend and we'll link in the show notes. And he also writes the Faster Please newsletter, which we will also link and I also recommend for our listeners. You can learn more about James' biography in our show notes. Now here's my conversation with James Pethokoukis. James Pethokoukis, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Things podcast. Ah, Tisho, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Well, I'd like to introduce the ideas behind the conservative futurist by asking you to describe your Futurama. I thought that might be a good way to introduce the concepts in the book. Could you tell us about your Futurama? Of course, there have been two actual real-world Futuramas, one at the uh, 1940 New York World's Fair and one at the 1964 Both were kind of amusement park kinds of rides where people were sort of taken on a trip through an imagined uh, future decades hence. And the uh, the one I spend the most time in the book is the 64 Futurama, which everything you would imagine from like the futurism of that era was in that like 15 minute carousel ride, space colonies, undersea cities, super high skyscrapers. This is like, so what would my version, if I was telling people to create a Futurama, I think I'm not sure. Like I have a vision of things like I think are cool and I like think are cool or all the things from the 1964 Futurama. Like <laughs> I want space colonies. I want undersea cities. I want be able to take a, 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 a rocket plane, hypersonic rocket plane from Dulles airport in DC to, to Berlin in, in 15 minutes. I want all that sort of classic stuff. But the key point of my book is I am not telling you that this is the particular kind of future that you need to have. It's it's a book about creating an environment for faster tech progress and faster economic growth that I think all our decisions combined as a society will create a, a future that is healthier and wealthier, and there's more opportunity. The exact image of that, though I would like more positive images of the future from our culture, like I'm not for like a ministry of the future. We're going to build the Department of the Future in suburban Virginia, and there's going to be a big like NORAD looking room with screens where they're planning the... No, I, I think if we do the thing is right with creating that environment, I think something pretty good will happen. Though, of course... I do hope there's a, a flying car or two whizzing about in the sky. Yes, please. And our, our audience now completely knows why I invited you on the podcast, because I'm such an absurd optimist, even in the face of really difficult politics. Our audience is the oil and gas industry, and we're all about leading into the energy future. And a lot of 
our work is about transcending polarized politics and having articulating a vision of the future that's so compelling that it's clear why oil and gas leaders need to be civic leaders in this. When I heard you speak at Breakthrough and you talked about these two concepts of upwing and downwing and how they didn't have to be tied to political parties. I knew there was something new for me to work with here. So can you tell our audience about upwing and downwing and how that fits into this creating the conditions for innovation and prosperity? Yeah, well, most people certainly are aware of, you know, left wing versus right wing. But I'm kind of like moving out of that sort of two dimensional, I guess. I I don't know. I, if we were doing video, I would be making images with my hands about where it all. But upwinks, it's a transcendent notion, which is you, you move above the notion of left and right. And you think hard, whether you whatever you call yourself, a Democrat, Republican, conservative, liberal, whatever. Do you think that America and sort of humanity more broadly, it's a bit grandiose, but humanity more broadly, that we have it within our power to solve problems, that we can create, as we always have, tools to solve problems that will at least incrementally, and perhaps more, create a better world that we would want to live in, that our children would want to live in. Do we have the capability? Do we have enough wisdom? Do we have enough will to do that? And if you think Yes, then I, you know, I'm, you know, again, you know, truth and labeling on the on the book. I'm a conservative. Like I can sit down in a room with somebody who thinks that too, and I think we'll have a ton to agree on, and we can hammer out something. But if you're something else, if you're downwing, I'm not sure we're going to have a whole lot to agree on because the downwing is the, the opposite of that. Who think, boy, oh boy, it's not worth the risk. Better safe than sorry economic growth and tech progress, it'll probably just make the world worse. It'll probably just make the environment worse. If the economy grows faster, it's just going to be a few people will benefit. Too much disruption. We just better like not do that. And of course, the most, most extreme version are folks who want to go backwards, who want to not just have stasis, but degrowth, who want to go back to some imagined never really was idyllic past. So I think if you can break it down into up versus down, you begin to see who your true allies uh, really are and perhaps who your true opponents really are. It's such a compelling approach. And I wish our audience could have seen your face because when you talk about upwing, like everything lit, lit up. And I just want to cry when you talked about downwing. <laughs> <laughs> so these are just such captivating ideas. Let's break our audience's brain. Because most people in the oil and gas industry consider themselves people who are stewards of the environment and care of the environment. But we find ourselves often in this sort of like oppositional relationship with people who consider themselves climate activists or environmentalists. Can you describe what an upwing environmentalism looks like? Because I think this might be a way we find a shared path between oil and gas and environmental NGOs who have maybe framed themselves in unnecessarily in opposition. Can you imagine that for us? The environmental movement, as we've had it in this country for the past half century, has been predominantly a downwing movement. Now, you know, as I write in the book, we were always going to get some sort of environmental movement. We were going to get people who were going to look around and say, uh, boy, you know, we've had, you know, things have been growing faster. Our incomes are higher. Boy, I'm certainly doing a lot better than my parents. But what about, you know, look at all these downsides. You know, the air is, is, is too dirty. The rivers are too dirty. Like that is kind of a universal phenomenon you'll find in countries when almost like when they hit a certain like per capita GDP, mm -hmm. you start mm -hmm. to see people caring about that. 
So that we're going to have an environmental movement? Yes. But did we have to have one that from that observation of the world around and decided we've made a terrible mistake, mm-hmm. that we we can't keep going on, we can't keep gobbling up the earth resources, we can't have so many people on the earth, we will ruin the entire planet, not just the climate. I don't think we had to have that version because you can you can imagine one that says, boy, oh boy, uh, you know, we, we got some problems here. How can we fix those problems while still growing, giving people more opportunity, not telling people who are still super poor in this world, you can never live like people in the West, which is what a lot of environmentalists today do. So I can imagine an environmental movement that does something different, that focuses a lot more on thinking about, gee, how can technologies be cleaner? How can, how can we just you know, remove carbon from the sky. Let's have a, you know, let's follow up. I really, you can imagine environmental movement like in the 70s saying, okay, we've won the space race. Maybe now we need to create great technologies to win the environmental race, mm, but mm-hmm. not not stop racing, not like go backwards and, and, and give up and say, we all need to live in like communes. You can see how the counterculture movement really played into this back then, that we all need to live in communes and live very simple local lives with our houses built out of uh, mushrooms or something. I don't think that had to happen, but that's what we got. And maybe I see the first inklings of something different happening. I think we we can see inklings of something different happening. And one thing, compelling picture you paint in your book is this idea, if we had just abundant, limitless, almost free electricity for, you know, if if we solved that, what are all the things you can do? And what are all the things you can empower in terms of caring for things that we care about in the environment? I found all of that such a easy way to imagine that environmentalism becomes about being for different forms of abundant energy. Now, the pushback that we do have audience members who work in the environmental movement. And I think the fair and natural pushback would be, but, 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 you know, kind of like you have with like anything geoengineering or even some, you know, direct air capture. People say, but, 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 but what about the unintended consequences? What about the risk? So you lay out the precautionary principle as sort of this like driving this, I think driving impediment to progress. And you offer an alternative, the proactionary principle. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that and 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 how you think we could, as a society, embrace that concept more. The reason that we have the modern world is because we, as a society, decided to take risks, knowing that there could be downsides. And you know what? we will deal with those sort of on the fly because absolutely the difference here is I acknowledge there are going to be unintended consequences. This is not a book of utopia. This is that there will be things that, but then we'll fix those too. And then, you know, maybe, maybe the solution to those might cause a couple problems as well, but we keep moving forward. I just don't see ultimately how we have any other choice. That's surprisingly, I write about like nuclear energy in the 70s and the pushback, but we don't have to, it doesn't have to be a history book. You just look at AI where we got to enjoy this, oh, this cool breakthrough in artificial intelligence for about 15 minutes. And then we focused on, oh, it's going to take all the jobs. It's going to kill us. But one of the more interesting criticisms is people who will say, Sure, maybe AI will be good and allow us to cure diseases and create super materials and 
you know, speed up the economy. But boy, look at all the energy it uses. Look at all the energy these models use to train them. Now, can you imagine like AI everywhere just sucking up energy to power these computers? We can't, we can't have it. We cannot have it too much. And I mean, when I heard someone say that, I'm like, this is what I've been living with my entire life saying you can't have it because even if we concede the good things, it's going to be bad for the environment, use too much energy. Well, I think the solution there is not to abandon a technology, but try to figure out how we can generate more energy in a way that doesn't hurt the environment. That's the problem to fix. Like we don't have a climate change problem. We have an energy you know, creating a clean energy problem. So let's. Let's focus on that, not tell people like this is ever this is as good as it's going to get, which may not seem horrible if you are living in the West, but see, probably seems pretty horrible if you're living in a lot of other places in the world. I completely agree. And I will warn our, our, our audience that once you read The Conservative Futurist, you cannot read the news anymore without seeing the downwing impulses and so much reaction to progress. And I, as I read, I here's the question I really wanted to push back on with you. That's great. Does anyone, <laughs> does anyone think they're downwing, or is everyone in their own mind think they're upwing? And so everyone could read your book and be like, "Yeah, it's that. It's always them, the other <laughs> people." Do they reframe the world as they are the upwingers? Well, I think the way I I think the way I define it. I think people would, I think there are people who are down. We could say like, okay, you can call me downwing, which seems like a pejorative, but I'm the realistic, I'm the realistic one. Just look at the world around us. What you're, what you're creating, either you're, either you're utopian or you're disregarding these trade-offs. So they might think of downwing, but they might say something like, I will wear that. I will wear your scorn as a badge of honor. Yes, I'm downwing. <laughs> I don't want to take the risk. It's just not worth it. So I think people understand that. They're just, they'd probably say that they're the realistic ones, like that they're the ones who really understand uh, the trade offs of, of making these decisions. But yeah, so I, I, I think the downwingers know they're downwingers, though they might not like that phrase. I, so that's great. And someday when you when you go head to head against a downwinger, please call me. I want to be in the audience uh, for that. So, OK, when you when I saw you speak, I might have trouble the, staying emotionally regulated. <laughs> I might have some. All, all, all the better. So when, when I saw you speak at the Breakthrough Institute's dialogue, you were on stage with Greg Epp of the Wall Street Journal, and he took you into politics. So I'm going to I'm going to do the same, which is imagining what would a presidential race between two candidates look like that are both from upwing would be the idea. So I, I'm from Colorado and this is a, a blue state and we have a governor who as much as any governor could have national ambitions. What advice would you give to a Democratic candidate for president on how to be upwing? Because I think it might be really hard to be a Democrat and be upwing right now and be competitive nationally. I think that may have been the case. I no longer think it's the case because I think we had when I mean, the centerpiece of President Biden's economic agenda is the you know Inflation Reduction Act and sort of his green energy push, which if you're just sitting in an office in Washington, D.C., the whole thing probably seems very simple. You're like, okay, we here, what do we want? Here's the money we want to spend. And the only debate is, you know, how much money to put there, how much money to put, you know, other places. But then as some 
people in the Biden administration discovered and some sort of center left pundits discovered. Like that's just the beginning because it doesn't matter how much money you spend if you can't build any of this stuff in any kind of timely fashion or any kind of budgetarily responsible fashion due to regulations where you, you know, forget it, you can't build a transformer, you can't build a highway, you can't build a high speed rail. You can't, if you love wind turbines, a man who doesn't love a beautiful wind turbine, that you can't forget about like placing the turbine somewhere. You can't build the factory to build the turbine. So if you like all that stuff and you think it makes a lot of economic sense, you can't do it. So I think there has been a, a, at least a slight awakening among Democrats, some Democrats and some folks on the left that we have a major problem is, in this country with just this kind of these regulatory barriers make it very hard to do things in the real world. And I also think you know there's a greater understanding that the current approach to climate change, which is we need to do less, that we need to, it's, we need to be more, we just need to be more efficient and we need to not do things. We need to invest, you know, invest in AI because that we need a world of energy abundance. Now we can debate on how, where that energy is going to come from, but we just see like when you don't have energy abundance or when you don't have abundance at all, when you go to, a, when you go to a store during a pandemic and you can't find Clorox wipes, that that is ultimately a failed message. Now we can now we have a different debate. Now we have a debate of how to power the future. Man, that's that is a debate I would love. Like you know how these presidential debates and they'll have like it'll be foreign policy. I would like one where like at least at least a solid 45 minutes is how do we power the future in a way that is environmentally responsible but also provides the energy we need for who knows what? It's not just AI. It could be for desalination plants or vertical farming or things that I don't even know yet because, you know, the entrepreneurs have yet to figure it out. That would be a he that would be a heck of a debate. One of the things that struck me about what you were saying is a lot of the difference between upwing and downwing is the way you decide to frame trade-offs. You had described a downwinger might saying, I'm just being realistic about the trade-offs. But an upwinger is saying... Let's take on the trade-offs and, and be optimistic about how we can handle the trade-offs. So that it's a very subtle, it's a very subtle, but it's it's a I think it's a fundamental paradigm of how you approach the world. Like we can handle it, or whatever happens, we can handle it, or whatever happens, we can't handle it. Can that pervade politics? Do you think? And do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, I, th I think the notion that the riskiest thing you can do is take no risk at all. Again, what would, you know, what would the climate be like had we thought hard about how to provide abundant cleaner energy back in the 70s? I think we'd have a very different debate. I mean, what if like all the kind of things that we're seeing now pop, you know, whether it's AI or whether it's CRISPR or, you know, reusable space rockets from SpaceX, all that stuff, like where would we be? Had we thought differently about risk and reward and trade-offs 30 years ago, 40 years ago, I spent a lot of time in the book uh, talking about that, like the dreams of like the 60s. Then again, you saw in the late 90s, many of those, it's not that they just weren't technologically possible. A few were maybe, but we just decided not to pursue them. And had we pursued them, where would we be today? You know what? We just had a pandemic. 
you know, what if we already had a universal coronavirus vaccine and that was it was ready to go? That all you had to do was, you know, shoot down to CVS or Walgreens, depending where you are in this country. And boom, you would have had it. That's not an impossible thing. We could have done that a lot earlier. Now, I don't know if people have seen this, but there was a great series. It's based on a book by William Gibson called The Peripheral. And it takes place in the 21st century. And by the year 2100, 80% of the world has died. It's terrible. And it's not that any one huge thing went wrong. It was like a lot of little things, a pandemic here, like a limited nuclear war here, climate there. So it was just like a lot of things all kind of went wrong, starting in like around 2030. And it's like, oh, that's a typical kind of dystopian sci-fi. Also part of that story, which is why I think it's unintentionally an upwing story, is that like in the 2050s and 2060s, everything started to work. As it says in the book, science started popping. They figured out AI. They figured out like nanotechnology where you can build just about anything with these little, you know, tiny, tiny robots. Like all the sci-fi stuff happened. It just happened too late. If it had happened 30 years ago, all those problems could have been solved. And sitting in the, during the pandemic, that's what I thought. I'm like, why are we sitting here? Like, why why wasn't this solved? Could something have been done? And I tend to think that, that yeah. And I, I don't want to be sitting here when something goes wrong. Maybe it's a giant asteroid head toward Earth. And we're like, oh, I guess it would have been great had we solved this 30 years ago. Oh, well. I think that's one of the things that really stuck with me in the book, the what could have been. And of course, I immediately translate that into, okay, well, what could be if we got our shit together right now? Like, let's not wait. Like, no more. We, we don't have another day. Think of all the things that are passing us by. All a second, you hear the clock ticking in a way. Like, totally, let's go, let's go. absolutely. Yeah. Like, let's go. Very compelling. So you have a bunch of pro-progress policy ideas. I'm wondering if you have a favorite you would like to tell our audience about. Some of them are ones that you wouldn't typically, you know, see in a... Uh, you know, coming out of a, a think tank or something. And, you know, I mean, maybe now you would about the stuff about AI. I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's very important for us to you know, begin moving further out in the space. And I think it's not just for kind of national pride reasons, but real uh, economic, uh, real economic reasons. But to me, like the very, and this is, this, this may be like the boring Washington policy wonk answer, but I remember sitting in a room listening to Elon Musk and Elon Musk, you know, who was born in South Africa, went to Canada, then the United States said, if you want to do something great with your life, and that could be a lot of things. It could be build a business. It could be build SpaceX or maybe just create a better life you know, for yourself and your children. There is no better place on earth to try and do that than the United States. The ability to attract people who want to do that and put them in an environment where they can do that, that is, an, that is like the deep magic of the American economic project. I want more of that. If there can be a deeper recognition of what an incredible asset that is, especially as you, as you see populations being to stagnate or even shrink, to be one of the countries where people will still want to come to, people are ne probably never going to want to go to Bolivia to build their dreams. They are going to want to go to the United States, so we don't want to blow that. It may not be a particularly novel sentiment, but I think it's an awfully important one. And the, uh, as I say, the great verities of life must be repeated. So I think that is one of the great verities of our economic experiment we're running in this country. 
One, it's something that I think is easy to forget when there's sort of this general malaise that America isn't what it once was or isn't what it could be. It completely misses that framing, which is just when you relay it, it's just so infectious. So like we should all we should all be infecting our optimism with gratitude for the the myriad of opportunities we have. So I'm going to end with a question, last question for you that's similar to one I ask. I usually ask my guests what they're most optimistic about. But the thing that affected me the very most of your book was the idea that our beliefs about the future matter. Because I think this really maps well to oil and gas industry executives have to believe they have a compelling leadership role in the future to not be sort of on defense in these culture wars, right? But to be narrating a role for the oil and gas industry in the future. And so I'm curious, what of your beliefs about the future make you optimistic? You know, I started writing the book in like probably a lot of books that came out about this time, summer 2020, you know, you had a lecture time, you weren't commuting as much. So that sort of gave me the time. And then the, then the, you know, what was happening with the pandemic, yeah, gave me an additional reason to think about how things would be different. And it really was a case that from the time I started writing the book to the time I really had to like to turn in like the manuscript and I, you know, put it down and I picked it up. It really was kind of like that example I gave about that TV show, The Peripheral. Things really kind of started popping. You know, we had like this great advance in, you know, what I think is a great advance in AI happening, you know, uh, in November of last year. You saw like a nuclear fusion breakthrough not long after that. Pick up the paper and we're seeing the FDA, you know, maybe approving like the first CRISPR, you know, some of the very first CRISPR treatments. SpaceX. And we may have a Starship rocket launch coming up very soon, but even then, they'll you know, ferrying astronauts to space, like all those things kind of happening together. And that's what we saw during like the late industrial, uh, second half of the Industrial Revolution, where we had a cluster of technologies, many of which help each other. Like AI makes all that other stuff easier. If you can have lots more energy, it makes powering the AI easier. If we have an orbital economy, we can do things that maybe you can't do under under a gravity. Like all these things might have a combinatorial effect on each other. I think that has created a moment. And now what we do is need to meet that moment with good decisions and a little bit of optimism. It doesn't have to be utopian, but a little bit of optimism and hopefully paint a picture of what it could be like. And that's one thing I like about all these AI tools is that now it gives regular people more ability who even are artistically inclined that I'm not to create actual images of what the future can look like. We don't have to wait for Hollywood to create positive images of the future. It might be a long wait, but now you can begin to create them themselves and people are maybe a little bit more artistically inclined, but are optimistic can do that. So I think this is a moment and I, I, I don't want to miss it. James, the work you're doing is so important. It's it's planting seeds to create virtuous cycles of pragmatic optimism far and wide. Thank you so much for joining me on the Energy Thinks podcast. Uh, Tisha, thanks for so much for having me on. It's been great. That's our episode for today. Thanks so much to James for joining me. You know what I found interesting? I've seen him speak and after reading his book, I was actually surprised with just how uplifted I felt <laughs> during the whole of our conversation. James is like, 
an optimism drug. So maybe you want to just keep this podcast in your in your regular feed if you need a little pick me up. I'd love to know what you thought about this. So please uh, feel free to reach out to me at energythinks.com. I hope you'll take a moment and rate and review our podcast so that more listeners can find us and find this conversation. I would like to thank my colleague, Adon Rubio, for making all things podcast possible. Until next season and next year, I'm Tisha Schuler, wishing you and yours happiness, prosperity, and good health.